passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, floodwaters are one of the most destructive forces in all of nature. Floodwaters can destroy our possessions, they can destroy entire homes, and in really bad situations, they can destroy entire cities. I can think of no better example of this than New Orleans back in 2005 during Katrina. Today, we can mention Hurricane Katrina, and our minds instantly go to the destruction that happened in that city uh, that almost 10 years ago now, if you can believe it. And, and why is it so well known? I think the reason why it's so well known to us is because of the amount of devastation that was wrought in that city. But I want to start by saying that Katrina didn't really need to happen. Okay? Katrina didn't need to happen. It could have come and it could have gone with us forgetting about it like we do most of the other hurricanes that come our way. So why is it so memorable to us? Why was it such a big deal what happened in New Orleans almost 10 years ago? Well, I did a little bit of research on uh, Hurricane Katrina this past week, and I discovered that the average elevation, and I've checked these, uh, these statistics with Tom Straub, who actually uh, was in New Orleans uh, 2005. So uh, he, he made sure that I was, he, that I was telling truth here. So uh, the average elevation of New Orleans is uh, six feet below sea level. The entire city has uh, been built uh, as a massive effort to reclaim uh, land back from the Gulf of Mexico. And in order to protect this city from flooding, there are a lot of levees and seawalls that have been built to protect New Orleans. The interesting thing about Katrina when it came is that uh, New Orleans survived the winds even though they were 150 miles an hour, up to 150 miles an hour. Uh, survived that relatively unscathed. Even survived the rain itself relatively unscathed. It was minimal compared to what came next. You see, the Mississippi River, along, along the Mississippi River, the levees that were there were strong enough to endure all of the bad uh, flooding that happened. But the levees that were built around the lakes, the swamps, the marshes that surround New Orleans were unprepared for the amount of water that was about to hit them. And before the levees broke, before the floods really came, the administration of New Orleans knew what was going to happen. They had a really bad feeling about how, lack, how, how, how much uh, lack of preparation they had before this. And so they, they called for a mass exodus from New Orleans. And, and hundreds of thousands of people left New Orleans expecting the worst. And those who expected the worst were right. At one point, uh, 80% of the entire city was under some form of water. Not only that, but hundreds of billions of dollars worth of damage were done to that area. It was so <clears throat> severe that actually refugees were turned away from some of the refugee camps because there wasn't enough room for them. Looting became rampant and common because there wasn't clean drinking water or food for people to get to. And, and some people even tried to leave New Orleans but were turned back from crossing the bridges to other places because there was no plan in place to help these people. In this nightmare in U.S. history, I think we learned many things, but one thing in particular, and that is we were woefully unprepared. We were woefully unprepared for the devastation that Hurricane Katrina brought. And hurricanes can't be stopped. 
They're a force of nature that we can't control. They're a part of nature, and they just come with the territory of living in that area of the country, just like living in Kansas or Oklahoma means that there are going to be more tornadoes or, you know, bitter cold is a part of of living in northwest Iowa for us. We can't control those things, but we can prepare for them. Imagine how much different things would have been if we had been prepared for Hurricane Katrina. The majority, oh, the almost 2,000 lives that were lost, the majority of them would have been saved. Billions of dollars worth of damage would have been avoided. And those hundreds of thousands of people who had been displaced from their homes would have been able to return relatively quickly. Hurricane Katrina wasn't a disaster of nature as much as it was a disaster of preparation. And we wish that we would have been prepared for that. But hurricanes aren't the only thing that we should prepare for in our lives. Preparation is crucial, not just in hurricanes, not just in storms, but in all of life. And today we're going to focus on a passage in 1 Peter that talks about how God calls us to be prepared for the hard times in life. What are the ways that we can be prepared to endure hardship and suffering in our lives? See, it's not just storms that we should be prepared for. We should be prepared for the storms of our lives. Is there something that we can do in order to prepare for this? In fact, is it our responsibility as Christians to prepare for these things? Preparation is crucial. And that's what Peter focuses on this morning. The preparation that God calls us to have in order to endure the storms of life. In fact, preparation is the biggest indicator for us of how we will respond in the midst of hardship. Being prepared isn't going to make it necessarily easier to make it through there. But being prepared, Hebrews actually says, it's like having an anchor for your soul that will keep you afloat in the midst of the storms of life. And what is this preparation? What is it that Peter is focusing on in this passage? It's one simple phrase that that we're going to hammer over and over and over this morning, and that's this. We prepare for hard times by taking up the mind of Christ. We prepare for hard times by taking up the mind of Christ. Imagine that you are in a a floodplain, and there is a flood on the horizon, or that you live in New Orleans, and, and Hurricane Katrina is right on the horizon. This truth that we prepare for hard times by taking up the mind of Christ, that truth is like the levy that will protect us. And as we explore this passage this morning, we're going to see four truths that kind of serve as the anchors or, or the sandbags that will keep us safe in the midst of the storms of life. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 1. Peter says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What's the first thing that Peter tells us as we jump into this text is this. We prepare for the storms of life by being committed to the will of God. When we are committed to the will of God, we are in the process of 
preparing for the storms of life. For the last several weeks, as we've been working our way through 1 Peter 3, we've seen that Jesus is a model for us in the midst of our suffering. We can look at the way that Jesus himself suffered and look at that and say, that's hopeful, that he endured and so, so can I. It's an encouragement to us in the midst of our suffering. But what exactly did it look like for Jesus to endure? Or to put it another way, how was Jesus able to endure the hardships that he experienced? What, what was it that got him through the suffering that he experienced? Well, the answer here is at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, Peter brings up the will of God. That was the key for Peter, for Jesus, to make it through the difficulties he experienced. He was focused on the will of God. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, and if you just read the whole thing uh, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 24, there's a big change that happens in the Gospel of Luke where it says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. This is a massive uh, transition in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason why it says that is because Jesus has now stopped doing ministry in the area of Israel, and he's now going to Jerusalem. And the inference that you're supposed to gather from that is that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of man, and he went anyway. He knew that he was going to suffer, and he went anyway. His disciples tried to stop him because they knew that people didn't really like Jesus in Jerusalem, and he went anyway because he was focused on the will of God in his life. He had a resolute purpose to go to Jerusalem because that was God's will in his life. Here in this passage, Peter tells us that there are really two options for us in all of life. We can either be controlled by the human passions, and we'll explain what that means here in a second, or we can be controlled or guided by the will of God. Those are the two primary motivations in every single decision that you will make on the face of this planet. You'll either be controlled by human passions, or you will be guided by the will of God. Human passions are a lack of self-control. It's doing whatever feels good for you in the moment. Whatever you want to do is the human passions. I think a great example of this is uh, uh, our culture's understanding of masculinity today. Our culture has this understanding of masculinity that says uh, the, t- in order to be a man, you have to be with a lot of women, you have to have a lot of power, and you have to have a lot of money. And those who are able to accomplish that are the ones who are the most masculine, the most men in our society. But that's not what this passage tells us. In fact, it shows us that a lack of self-control is something that we have to recognize as human passions. What, what shows more strength? Being uh, weak in, in falling... I guess I gave the answer away. Uh, what, what shows more uh, strength? Being ruled by your passions or by saying no to them. Human passions show us a lack of self-control. On the other hand, the will of God is a humble submissiveness to God's plan. It's a humble submissiveness to God's plan. It's easy to understand, but it's very difficult to follow out. And when we suffer, these two mindsets lead to drastically different places. When we suffer, if we are controlled by human passions, we're going to do whatever it takes to flee the suffering that we experience, to flee the pain that we experience. So if it is my spouse who is causing me hard times, then I'm going to just leave. 
if it is God who is causing me hard times, then I'm just going to forget following him because I want to get away from those. But at the same time, the will of God is going to submit to God, even in the midst of the difficulties. It values God's will over our own comfort. This is what Jesus himself did. If we look at Luke chapter 22, there's a passage or a verse, verse 42, it says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays this in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross to die. I think it's a really important verse for us because notice what Jesus does. As Jesus is praying, he first and foremost says, God, please deliver me. If there is a way for this to happen with still being in your will and for me to avoid the suffering, then please, God, let me avoid this suffering. It's not wrong for us to pray, to avoid hardships, to be rescued from the suffering that we experience. But ultimately, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. It's not my will that I will submit to. It is your will that I will submit to. We submit our desires to the will of God. This passage tells us that we should have the same mindset as Christ. A mindset of Christ is to be focused on the will of God. But if, if we're honest with ourselves, some of us say, oh, I don't even know what the will of God is. I'm trying to figure out what that will is. How do I figure out his will for my life? I think one of the easiest ways for us to understand God's will is to know the entire story of the Bible, okay? Well, let me explain this. To know the entire story of the Bible gives us an understanding of what God's will is for us in our lives. So uh, I'm going to have a little bit of audience participation here. Um, How many of you, raise your hand, if you have seen the movie Frozen? All right, okay. We see a little bit, okay. Now, keep your hand up if you've seen it more than twice, or seen it twice, okay? I put my hand down, a couple people. Nice job, Dan. Uh, Keep it up if you've seen it three times, four times, five times, ten times. All right, the wards are still going strong, 20 times. (laughs) I I don't want to even go further than that. Now, what happens when we watch a movie over and over and over again? The more that we watch it, it's easier for us to gain a little bit of fatigue from watching that movie, especially for parents as their children watch Frozen over and over again. It's a little easy to gain fatigue from that. But at the same time that there's this fatigue, and are you kidding me, we have to watch this again, and none of you parents would ever say that. Um, At the same time that there's this fatigue, there's also this confidence that you know the story really, really well. I could actually ask some of you probably to act out the scenes from Frozen, and you do a pretty good job of getting them all in order for us. And not only that, but you'd know all the lines to it for us. And let's apply that to our lives. Now, when we watch a movie over and over and over again, the second time we see it, the third time we see it, or however many times we've seen it, a little bit of the thrill is gone, isn't it? In fact, just the other day, I don't remember what movie it was, but I was, Crystal and I just got done watching a movie, and I said to Crystal, that uh, I wish that I could forget this movie so I could watch it again for the first time. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, you, you lose some of the thrill the more you watch 
a movie because you're no longer wondering what's going to happen to the main characters. And actually, the more you watch it, the more you find yourselves anticipating the conflict that's about to come next. You know what is coming. That's not always a good thing. But in our lives, it's a different story. We know what is going to happen because the Bible says so. The Bible contains the entire revelation of God. It has the beginning, the creation, and it has the cross, and it has the end of time with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And when we understand this whole picture, when we know what is going to happen, how the story is going to end, it doesn't give us fatigue. It doesn't take away from some of the joy of living this life. It helps us in the midst of the difficulties and the hardships to know how the story is going to end. When we experience suffering and when we experience hardship, it's easy to get caught up in the moment and to only focus on what we are feeling and experiencing at that time. But to know the whole story of God, to know the beginning, to know the middle, and to know the end of God's story gives us hope, gives us confidence that we know how things are going to happen. Imagine uh, in Lord of the Rings if Frodo knew that Sauron was going to be defeated even before they set out on their quest. Or imagine in Finding Nemo if the dad Uh, had actually read the title of the movie and and knew that they were going to find Nemo before they even started. Or uh, in in the movie Argo, uh, the Americans who are are being held or are trying to escape Iran, if they knew that they were going to be able to make it, it would have taken away from a lot of the tension, a lot of the danger in those moments because they would have known the end of the story. And in our lives, knowing the whole story of God helps us to endure. It helps us to know what comes next. And that confidence helps us to prepare for hardship and for suffering. Now, what happens when we do this, when we focus on the will of God and when we begin to cultivate this mind of Christ? Well, Peter tells us here when he says that whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And when you read that, might wonder exactly what Peter is talking about here. This passage isn't saying that when you suffer, you automatically cease from sin. You automatically become sinless. That's not what this passage is saying. We know that from history. We know that from personal experience that there are a lot of people out there who have suffered and they are far from sinless. We know that from our own lives, that when we suffer, it doesn't automatically make us sinless. So what is Peter saying here in this passage? I think what he's saying is that when we suffer, We have these two options. Again, we have the option to follow the human passions or we have the option to follow God. The easy, natural way for us is to choose to follow our human passions. It is for us to take the easy way out to stop following God or get rid of whatever is causing us that hardship. So that's one option. But if we choose to follow God's will in the midst of suffering, It helps us to kill sin. When we choose to submit ourselves to God rather than running after what we want, we're saying no to sin. Sin begins to lose its grip on us. In a very literal way, when you suffer for following the will of God, you are killing sin in your life. You're removing it 
from your life. That's what Peter says here when he talks about following the will of God. We commit ourselves to follow God's will in order to prepare for hard times. Let's keep reading. Starting in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I think this is a really powerful verse. Um, it talks about the concept of dying to sin, and that's, that's what Peter focuses here. The second way that we can prepare for hard times is just to die to sin. We prepare for the storms of life when we die to sin. Peter lists several sins that were common for the people he was writing to uh, in their past and also very common in the culture that they found themselves. And he really splits them into three different categories. First is sexual sin. Uh, He talks about uh, different ways that that people sin sexually in that culture. Uh, And he, he looks at the culture and he understands that it is acceptable in that culture to actually be promiscuous. Not only is it acceptable, but it is a social norm for that day to live that sort of lifestyle. If you wanted to be involved in the marketplace, if you wanted to be involved in the temple, or if you wanted to be involved in society as a whole, you had to be promiscuous. That's just the way it worked. Now, our society isn't that bad. Uh, We don't have to, um, we, we don't get kicked out of Fairway or Walmart for not living in this way, but we still lived in a very hypercharged, sexually hypercharged culture. An example, the other day I was, uh, I was reading an article on GQ uh, website, and, and that's not typically what I do. I, I don't normally find myself, uh, yeah, Tasha, uh, I don't typically find myself um, on GQ's website, but I saw this article that said, uh, it was an article that said um, why porn is bad for you. And it was like a medical study on why pornography is actually bad for you. And I end up on this website and I read this article and I'm pretty pumped about, you know, GQ is actually talking about this. That's a great thing. I get to the end of the article and then there are some very provocative ads at the end of the the article that say, you know, check out this website or check out this post that we have here. And I just, I just had to laugh at what I was, I was seeing because here it is saying that this is bad for you. But at the same time, here you go. That's a society that we live in. Another thing that that Peter mentions is alcoholic sins. He talks about drunkenness, and he talks about drinking parties. And this is another cultural norm for the people of that day. Now, our culture isn't all that far off on this one, especially college culture. There are uh, some state colleges where it's, it's really encouraged. If not, it can kind of feel like a requirement for some of the students, if they want to graduate, to do this with their life, to experience this part of college life. And the third thing that Peter mentions is idolatry. Idolatry. Why, why does Peter mention idolatry? Yeah, that's a, that's a bad thing, but it doesn't seem to fit in. You have uh, sexual sin, you have <laughs> alcoholic sin, and then you have idolatry. What is, what is Peter doing here when he mentions this? Well, let's look again at the culture of, of Greco-Roman life. Um, these three things were intricately tied together in the first century. Okay, they all were connected, and they were part of the social norms of that day. So if you wanted to participate in idolatry, if you wanted to uh, worship the gods of that day, or if you wanted to worship the emperor, one of the ways that you did that was through a promiscuous lifestyle. 
uh, you actually, there were temple prostitutes that you would go and unite yourself with. Another way that you did that was through alcohol, uh, consuming large and large amounts of alcohol. If you wanted to be a part of society in general, you had to be an idolater. You had to commit these sins just to be a part of society. And if you didn't, if you didn't do these things or participate in these things, you were excluded from culture. You were excluded from society. And this just wasn't a a carefree, ah, whatever, the Christians are over there, they'll do whatever they want to do. This was actually a sign of, of serious mistrust. People didn't trust Christians and were extremely cautious towards Christians in that day and age because they were outcasts. They were on the outside of society and the people didn't trust them because they refused to participate in these three things. Peter talks about that a little bit in the next verse. And so we're going to talk about that more in a second. But I just want to draw attention to one more thing here in verse 3. And that is, why does Peter say the time that has passed suffices for doing evil? What is Peter talking about when he says the time that has passed suffices for doing evil? I think it's clear. He, He writes this and he says this because you have sinned enough in your past. You have sinned enough in your past. There's never a reason for more disobedience in your life. There is never a reason for more rebellion in your life. You have sinned enough. It doesn't matter if you sinned very little before you were a Christian or if you sinned a lot before you were a Christian. You have sinned enough. This is why it drives me crazy when people say, well, I'm just going to sow my wild oats for a few more years. If, If you say that, It shows that you have no idea how grave sin is in God's eyes, how putrid it is in God's eyes, how much it offends him. And you give us no reason when you say that I'm going to sow my wild oats, I'm going to live my life for a few years, and then I'm going to get serious about my faith. When you say that, you give us no reason to believe that you'll ever be serious about your faith. If you don't understand now how grave that is before God, then what makes you think that you will later? And now, God, granted, God does marvelous, miraculous things in people's lives. He's probably done that in some of our lives where we have had that mindset of, you know, I'm going to be focused on myself for a while. And then later on, once I have kids or, or once I get married, then I'm going to focus on Jesus. And God can do marvelous, great things through that. But what Peter is saying here. That's the wrong mindset to have. You've sinned enough in your life. There's not some magical quota that each and every one of us gets of you can sin this much, but you can't sin this much. And if you're right here, well, then you can keep sinning until you get to right here. That's not what Peter is saying here because we don't understand the gravity of sin. There's never a reason for us to keep sinning. And we prepare for the storms of life by dying to that sin in our lives. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter tells us another thing here. He says that we prepare for the storms of life when we remember justice. When we remember justice. 
Earlier, uh, just in the last section, we talked about uh, how the commitment of the Christian to lead uh, a good, holy life, a commitment to the gospel, leads to being ostracized in the community and to the world around us. The Christian's commitment to the will of God is surprising. It doesn't make any sense. And this commitment will lead to suffering. Now, this past week, I was, I was reading through the entire book of 1 Peter uh, just as a way to, to get this in context. And I, I realized that this is extremely relevant for us today because many of the examples in the book of 1 Peter, they talk about extreme forms of suffering, but there are also, forms, uh, there are also things in this book that talk about suffering that's more in our context, verbal forms of suffering, when you're made fun of or when you are reviled and slandered and mocked at school. I just want to read a couple of these to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless for this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you because of your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here in, in verse 4, it says again, it says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Verse 14 of this chapter, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In this book, Peter isn't just talking about experiencing physical suffering. He's also experiencing, he's talking about when you're made fun of, when you're the butt of the joke at, at work or at school, God is using that and God is working in your life in those situations. Your commitment to holiness, your commitment to the gospel will lead to suffering in your life. You will be mocked because of your commitment to God. You will be the butt of jokes for not participating in the lifestyle of those who are around you. But verse 4 paints a vivid picture with graphic imagery of what this looks like in God's eyes. I don't know if many translations catch what Peter is saying here. What Peter is saying in verse 4 is something like this. They laugh at your expense when you don't run headlong with them into the very excess of the reckless life. Peter is painting a picture of a society that is on the highway to hell and couldn't care less about that. In fact, they are enjoying every single minute of it. They are mocking you because you aren't joining in with everything that they are doing. And they're just loving it. And then Peter writes verse 5. He writes verse 5 to give us the big picture. Remember the whole story of God. He says that those who mock you for not joining in with them in the things that they do, they're going to give an account to God one day. They're going to stand before God one day. And they're going to have to give justification for why they made fun of you. Why they slandered you or reviled you in those situations. Peter is encouraging us by telling us about the justice of God. If you experience mockery, don't be discouraged. You will be vindicated. But at the same time, pray like crazy. 
for them, for these people who are on this highway to hell. Pray for them that God would work in their life. And actually, that's what we're going to talk about next week because Peter addresses that next week. We've sinned enough. They have too. Without the gospel, without the grace of the gospel, there will be justice for them to pay. Peter tells us as we experience hardship, experience suffering in our lives to remember the justice of God. Let's look at the final verse here. Verse 6. It says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter closes this section by telling us that we prepare for the storms of life when we remember grace. We prepare for the storms of life when we remember grace. And let's unpack that statement and let's unpack this verse a little bit here. The people that Peter is writing to are all first-generation Christians. They are the first Christians in their family. But not only that, they're some of the first people to become Christians on the face of the planet. And one of the truths of the gospel is that Jesus has overcome sin and Jesus has overcome death through his own death. That eternal life is given to Christians. Today we have the Bible. We have the New Testament that helps us understand what exactly that means. Uh, we, we know that this is a future promise that isn't fully given to us now. That it doesn't refer to eternal life that we're going to live forever in these broken mortal bodies, but it's not until after our resurrection, when we receive resurrection bodies, that we are going to live forever with God. But the people Peter is writing to don't have that luxury. They don't have the New Testament. They're exploring this on their own. And a lot of people who are on the outside would hear that Christians have been promised eternal life. They've been promised a victory over death. And yet Christians keep dying. Christians die just like everyone else. And so they begin to mock Christians, saying, you think that you have victory over sin and death, but, you know, your friend just passed away. Tell me about that. It's one of the ways that they are mocking them in this time. And yet what Peter is saying here, what Peter is, is focusing on here is realigning our understanding of this, realigning their understanding of, of what God's grace does for us, what this victory actually looks like in our lives. I, I have no, no doubt that Peter's original audience, there were probably some people that were depressed, they were confused, they were listening to what people were saying and maybe ready to give up on Christianity because you know what? They're right. We've been told that we're going to have eternal life, and yet people keep dying. So maybe this whole thing is just a hoax. But that's why Peter writes this verse here. He talks about those who have, the gospel has been preached to, even those who have already died, even those who are currently dead. If you have heard the gospel, and you have believed the gospel, and then you pass away, God is still victorious. God is still going to be at work in your life, that you will one day be raised from the dead again. You have escaped those who mock you. And if not for Jesus, you would be facing the exact same condemnation that they would be facing. See, the gospel is good news for those who believe. And that is what Peter 
is saying here. That if it wasn't for this gospel, if it wasn't for the work of Jesus on your behalf, the justice that gives you hope in the previous verse, you would also be facing that justice yourself if it wasn't for Jesus coming. It's because of grace that you have been pardoned. It's because of grace that your sins have been covered. It's because of grace that you have confidence to be able to stand before God, that God will raise you from the dead. And so Peter closes by saying, remember grace. Remember the grace that God has given you and how that grace will help you through the hard times of life. That's what the gospel does for us. The gospel gives us life. The gospel gives us hope. Just like Noah, as we looked at last week, that the gospel has brought us through the terrible judgment that awaits us. And that's why we remember grace. Preparation for the storms of life is crucial. Without preparation, we can be swept away by the storms that we experience in our lives. And we do that. We prepare for those storms by taking up the mind of Christ. And this mind of Christ is one that is focused on the will of God. It's one that dies to sin. It's one that remembers justice and actually looks to God for justice. And it is one that remembers the grace God has for us. The easy thing for us to say now as we come to a close is just to say, okay, well, that's our application point this morning. Our application is to to take up the mind of Christ, and and we do that by focusing on God's will, by dying to sin, uh, by remembering justice when we experience injustice, and and remember the grace of God. And that's not a bad thing, but let's be honest, that's, that's a big chunk to bite off. Especially if we're experiencing hardship and suffering right now in our lives. So I want us to just pick one of these things, to just focus on one of these things. For some of us, we need to grow in our understanding of God's will. And the way we do that is by just looking at the whole story of God, to pick up the Bible and read, to get a big picture of what God is doing in our lives and through our lives. For others of us, we might have some sin that just keeps nagging us, that we keep putting off until tomorrow and say, God, I'll, I'll worry about it tomorrow. And, and this passage is saying, no, let's, let's put that sin to death. Let's die to sin in our lives. For others of us, we might be on the front lines right now. We might be in a situation where we experience mocking. We experience slander from those who are around us. And if that's the case, this is an encouragement to us. It's a call for us to remember the justice that God has and that God will bring. And then for some of us, there, there might be a couple of us here this morning who, you know, we hear this whole thing about having the mind of Christ and, and, and we really wrestle with we even know Christ rather than just having his mind. If that's you, then the passage that we just read is saying, don't just remember grace, but run to it. Accept the grace that God has for you. Accept the the grace that God will give you to overlook the justice that he will one day bring. Remember grace. I want to just take a moment and think about what, what things would be like if we all did this, if we all committed to taking up the mind of Christ, to cultivating this in our life. For the person who is mocked by their coworkers, They respond with a Christ-like gentleness. 
a loving attitude and, and over time, who knows, maybe God will use that to bring about their own conversion. For the student who is feeling on the outside of the class because they won't participate in the same things that everyone else does. If they stand up for their faith, then maybe other people will see that faith and be encouraged by that and stand up for their faith as well. We don't know how God can use our faithfulness, but we do know that God will use our faithfulness, that God will use us committing to cultivating the mind of Christ in our lives, to focusing on the will of God, to dying to sin, to remembering justice and to remembering grace. And that is the good news of this passage. That's the good news of the gospel. We prepare for hard times when we take up the mind of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace that you show us on the cross. We thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you have allowed us to escape justice by covering up our, skin, our sins. And Father, we pray that now you would give us the strength to take up the mind of Christ, to focus on your will, God, and to live like Jesus did in the midst of hardship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.